Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site, out in the town, or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500. Or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative canyon. Explore our inventory online at WoodhouseBuickGMC.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC. We are professional grade. is America with Rich Valdez, powered by PolitiWeek.com. And Rich Valdez is with us, former Christie administration official. You worked for Chris Christie, you've been in politics, done a lot of public service stuff. Rich Valdez, columnist now with the Washington Times. This is America. Richie V, you're on the air with the nation. The nation. This is America with your host, Rich Valdez. What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez. We are here at 17, not floors, but blocks away from Madison Square Garden right here in New York City. And there's vending machines that you can now take your COVID-19 home testing and buy it right in a vending machine. New York City has seen vending machines for engagement rings, Brooks Brothers shirts, as well as PPE like gloves and sanitizing wipes. But this new Manhattan machine is really testing the limits. Since January, a storefront at 225 West 34th Street, that's close to our old studio, formerly home to a Lane Bryant, has hosted two of the health company Wellness for Humanity's new vending machines which sell DIY at-home COVID-19 test kits instead of snacks or sodas. And this is uh, in today's post. For $149, credit or debit card only, no cash, you can pick up a PCR saliva test, use it at your leisure, mail it to one of the company's partner labs via FedEx with a pre-printed label, and get your results via text or email within 48 hours. And here's a quote from... uh, Lauren Folland, who lives in Jamaica, Queens, and just did one. She said, I wanted to get something quick that would be reliable. So she went and did this after flying home from a Fresno, California funeral. Researchers at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center found that in the detection of COVID-19, a self-collected saliva sample is as accurate as a nasal swab administered by a healthcare worker. Now, I'll stop right there to just say, I literally just had my nasals swabbed right now. Right before, uh, about six, seven, eight minutes ago, I was just in there, and they swab every uh, Tuesday here in the studio. They do the COVID-19 test, and they stick this extraordinarily long Q-tip right up your nose, and they tickle it all the way until you start to cry, and then they go, okay, thank you, <laughs> and you're like you're crying because your tear ducts have been molested, and then uh, you're like, all right, thanks, and you know, then they text you the results, and thank God, thus far... I, mine has always been non-detected, which is uh, pretty cool, I think, that they can do it so quickly. But in comparison to the pharmacy drive throughs where this one individual had been tested 10 or so times over the course of the pandemic, the machine dispensed kit feels like the most luxurious way to get tested. You don't have to sit in your car. You don't have to go and stand on a line. You just do it at home. While it's not FDA approved, the test is among a swath of at-home nasal and saliva collection kits available under emergency use authorization, meaning that the FDA allows them when certain statutory criteria have not been met, including that there is not enough uh, 
adequate alternatives. So they say, you know what? We don't have something else to point you to. You can use this thing. Anyway, this is how they've been doing it, blah, blah, blah. It gets into all of the nuts and bolts of what's going on with the molecular biology and how these tests work. But I like the aspect that this is, in effect, a small business. This company is capitalizing on the pandemic. They're saying, you know what? Look, people can't do this. They can't do that. Let me give them a product that they can use. And that's always been my thought. I always thought, you know, people used to say, oh, it's the people, the Bush administration, they're so evil, right? When we were in the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, everybody thought, how could these people, you know, Dick Cheney, he was CEO of Halliburton. How dare you? And I thought to myself, why wouldn't you be? If you know you're at war and that's the company that makes guns and bombs and our government's probably going to buy some guns and bombs, why on earth wouldn't I go and buy a little bit of Halliburton stock? Since I know it's going to go up because they're going to be in demand because they're going to get all these government contracts. To me, it makes all the sense in the world to look at the trends, whatever trend is going on. If you find that dogs are becoming in popular demand, find the, the biggest uh, dog. Um, what are they called? Puppy mills? That's the, the bad name. <laughs> they're called breeders. And you find the biggest breeder and you say, you know what, I'm going to maybe become a partner with this guy. And if they're publicly traded, buy some of that stock if you know that's the next wave. Just like the last week we had somebody on that was talking about gold. And he was saying, look, you can't go wrong with gold. And I was telling him the last time that I looked at gold, it was a number of years ago, $750 an ounce. As of Friday, it was at $1,776 an ounce. A solid investment. And it was down 5%. So my point is there are lots of ways to make money. You just got to keep your eyes open. If you know that oil prices are going to go through the roof like with Biden right now, I would think a good thing to do right now is buy oil because there's a war on it. People want less of it. So with that being said, buy the oil company, buy their stock. It's going to go up. They're going to spend more money. They're going to make more money. It makes all the sense in the world. Now, I always support small business. This morning, I got my eggs, my avocado, all that stuff that I get in the morning. I get it from two guys, Lalo and his brother. They have a cart right here on 48th Street. And guess what? It's called El Vaquero Cafe. But it's not really a cafe. It's a stainless steel cart on the corner of 48th Street. And they make the best stuff because I believe if those guys are willing to be there at 5 a.m. to, you know, braving the cold and doing what they do to brew the coffee, make the eggs, all that stuff. And it's like full service, you know, not like some of the other carts that are just coffee and donuts and bagels. These guys will cook you up huevo ranchero if you want it. They will hook it up. I mean, they have everything. I will, um, I will highly recommend them. But my point is, Free plug business spotlight for the uh, Vaquero Cafe. My point is small businesses matter, and I try my best to go out of my way to visit those small businesses because big businesses matter. But you know what? The little quiche type of eggs that they sell at Starbucks are not always as great and as great a value as the three eggs that I get for six bucks with ham and mozzarella and slices of avocado and slices of, uh, it's almost like pico de gallo, uh, the tomato and some pepper and all that stuff. I mean, it really is terrific. So the value to me is better with my guys in the cart. Small businesses matter. Now, Rep, uh, I think it's Roe or Bo Kahana. Ro Kahana, right? Yeah, Ro Kahana. He's a congressman from California. He was the chairman of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Well, Representative Kahana was on CNN yesterday, and I'm going to play this audio for you. I want you to hear what he had to say. He uh, admits that Democrats don't want small businesses that pay less than $15 an hour for minimum wage. And I think that's messed up because 
if you have a company and you, you hire somebody and you can't afford to pay them whatever the the you know this minimum wage is and whatever, and you have like those guys, those guys aren't. They don't have to adhere to the New York City minimum wage. The reason being, they have less than I don't know how many employees, so they can you know it can fluctuate. But my point is, if they say, look. You're 16, your, your high school is shut down, you're doing remote learning, you're in school till 1 o'clock. I can use your help for three or four hours. I can pay you 12 bucks an hour. If you're interested, I have a job for you. The kid could say, no, I'll stay home for the 35 bucks, 36 bucks, whatever it is. Or, yeah, I'll do it because that 36 bucks, you know, it gets me A. I could buy some food while I'm playing video games, whatever it is. Freedom, liberty, right? You get to choose what you want to do. It's a free market. That would be gone if we leave it to guys like Rep Kahana because Rep Kahana is a uh, – anti-capitalist monster. Listen to this. Well, of course, large businesses like Amazon uh, and McDonald's, for example, can can and perhaps should pay more. But I'm, I'm wondering, what is your plan for smaller businesses? How does this, in your view, affect mom and pop businesses who are just struggling to keep their doors open, keep workers on the payroll right now? Well, they shouldn't be doing it by paying people low wages. We don't want uh, low wage businesses. I think most successful small businesses can pay a fair wage. If you look at the minimum wage, it increased with worker productivity until 1968, and that relationship was severed. If workers were actually getting paid for the value they were creating, it would be up to $23. So I love small businesses. I'm all for it. But I don't want small businesses that are underpaying employees. It's fair for people to be making what they're producing, and I think $15 is very reasonable in this country. Listen, $15, it's not about a question of reasonable or not reasonable. It's a question of don't put your hand in my pocket. Don't spend my money for me. That's really it. Now, of course, if you're on the other side of the table against me, here's what I advise you to say to argue against me. I would say, Rich Valdez, who do you think you are to determine what a living wage is for somebody? And what can you do with less than $15 an hour? And you want to try and defend and ridicule and minimize the person that is making this $15 an hour argument. I'm not saying that we should always pay people less. I'm saying that you should not force businesses to do something that they can't. Here's a story. My kid, right? I'm, t- I'm having this talk with her, and she's like, I would like $15 an hour. She's she's 19. She works uh, two different jobs, and she tells me, um, I-, I would like it if, if there was a $15 minimum wage. I think that would be great. And um, and I said, well, let me explain to you what happens. Let's say right now, you know, I think she makes $12.75. And, and she said, that would be great for me. And I was like, yeah, let me explain. If And she works for a small restaurant that's owned by a husband and a wife, and then in a, a chain restaurant, two different restaurants, and the chain restaurant, I said, let me explain to you how each of them are going to handle this. The mom and pop says, okay, uh, and she's a hostess, so she seats the people that are going to eat. And I said, you know that there's no way you can add more people when Saturday night comes if you have 50 tables and you have to social distance and do whatever – and you, your, 50 ta- your 50 tables are booked, you're done, right? If more people come, what do you do? She said, we have to put them on a waiting list, tell them to come back tomorrow, et cetera. Okay, perfect. So I said, when that happens and the government comes and tells your, your owners at that restaurant, you now have to pay $15 per hour, what happens? And she's like, well, they're going to have to pay us more money. And I said, sure. But now are they going to tell their customer that they have to pay more money? Because they have to pay you more. And she's like, probably not because people already say the place is expensive. I said, okay, right, because it's worth it. It's really fine cuisine and people don't, you know, they're, they're willing to pay, but nobody wants to get robbed. So she started to get it. And I, I said, so what happens when you're the boss and you, let's say you have $150 that you have to pay to 10 people 
and everybody's due 15. Um, and then you start to lower that and lower that. And now you have to pay the same amount of people, but you have the same amount of money, but you have to pay more money. And she said, well, they're going to have to come out of their pocket. And I said, what if they don't have more money in their pocket? What do they do? And she was like, they're probably going to fire people or cut hours. And I said, aha. And that is the issue. Because I said, you know, if they only have $150 that they can pay you, they're either going to make it fit however they can. This, you know, less hours to make it fit or, you know, just make you go away so we can use the money we're paying you to pay other people because we have to pay them more. Because money's not um, infinite, right? It's finite. You, you can only spend what you've earned in real life. In real, It's not the government. In the government, you raise taxes, you print more money, and that's how it works. But real life is different. So she looks at me. She goes, wow, that's exactly what happened. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I went in to, my, to talk to my manager, and I told him that, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of hours in the other place, and, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to earn more. I haven't had a raise in X, Y, and Z, and I've been here for a while. And they said, all right, yeah, you got it. We're going to give you a dollar raise. And she was like, wow, I was really taken aback. I thought it was going to be like a quarter or 50 cents or whatever. She got a dollar raise. And she said, and then when the schedule started coming out, I was getting one less hour every time. Instead of working a five-hour shift, I was working a four-hour shift. And I was like, look at that, kiddo. <laughs> there you go. Supply and demand, Economics 101. You see how it works. When you try to paint small business into a corner, the people lose because small business is the people. We, the people, make up small businesses. That's what it's all about. That's the free market. That is America. Mic drop. <laughs> That's the reality of life. And my kid, I thank God that she's bright enough to realize those things, even, you know, through a conversation. But she doesn't get caught up in, in what so many people in her age group are caught up in, where they're constantly, 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 you know, getting this barrage of this is bad, that's bad, this is bad, that's bad. Everything is bad when it's actually good. It's like, you know, we now live in the society, and I talked about this in, in my episode on Saturday, on Talk Radio 77 WABC, where I talked about the lack of spirituality that we have in America. It's really affecting us in many, many ways because we no longer look at humanity like humanity. You know, it used to be a thing that the Ten Commandments were kind of universally accepted truths. We don't kill. We don't murder, right? Not about killing. I mean, kill a deer so you can eat it, but we don't murder people. And the reason these these truths are becoming, they're no longer self-evident and they're not the same truths. But my point is we are losing touch with what was once an agreed upon truth for everyone. Moral relativism, idealism has crept into our society at an alarmingly high rate. It's always been there, but it was always fringe concept like AOC, for example. Right. Bernie Sanders. How long has Bernie Sanders been in the United States Senate? Quite a while. Has there been a, a massive following of Bernie Sanders type of people? I don't think so. He's always been a lone wolf communist sympathizer. It wasn't until he got a couple of people and after decades and decades and decades of this and lots of help from the university system, pumping communism into it, you know, kind of taking away the stigma. Communism's not so bad. It's kind of like the drug dealer that goes to the schoolyard and starts giving out drugs for free samples. Try it out. Try it. It's not so bad, man. Don't be a square. Try it out. Give it a sniff. Take a pull. Yeah, this, this is how they are with communism. They're like, man, just imagine you could stay home. Those schmucks work. They make all the money. And we take their money through taxes and you get to stay home. And then when we need you, you come out at night, you put on a mask and you burn something down. It's, it's a great system. 
that we have going. But Bernie Sanders never, never got a lot of gravitas. Even now, two runs for president that he may have actually been able to win the nomination. And what happened? His own people, not really because he's not a Democrat, but his own people, the, the people left of center, they turned on him twice because they don't want that. They know that that's dangerous. They know it. He doesn't know it. He thinks it's, you know, the best thing ever. It's the true utopia. And so many people think so, too. Oh, health care is a right. And they think that this, this Denmark is the solution to everything. And it's not. It's just not. And we've talked about that a million times. But the reason he never had the gravitas was because the timing wasn't right. It wasn't the right package. Old white communist, white hair, disheveled, you know, the whole Larry David thing. It didn't work out. But you package Bernie Sanders, you know, a.k.a. Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, and you pick anyone, and you put him in a Puerto Rican girl from the Bronx, and all of a sudden, wow, we have liftoff, birth of AOC. Now you have this fighting for the people, workers' rights, blah, blah, blah. I just explained to you workers' rights. Workers' rights will tank every restaurant in New York City if they can't hire a dishwasher at 12, 13 bucks an hour or whatever they can. People have to be allowed to survive. If they're not allowed to survive, it's all over. This is why when things get disrupted because of major union intervention, the airlines back in the 80s, when they're asking for more money than is able to be given to them, and they say, oh, I'm walking out, they start disrupting our systems, right? The air traffic control thing was a disaster. Now you have teachers that are like, you know what? I mean, listen, I work 8 to 3, 9 to 3. I can have the choice of, you know, taking summers off and blah, blah, blah. It's still not enough. I really, I want to make money like Bill Gates. What can we do here? I'm going to strong arm you. Listen, I'm not going back. Why not? I want a vaccine. I want every kid vaccinated. I want this and I want that. Hundred billion dollars. That's what we want. You get it for us, Joe. And that's what's going on. It's extortion. They're holding us hostage. The unions are in control. The communists are in control. The communists always used unions and organized labor to bring up about what they labeled. They created the term a general strike. It blows me away when someone comes to me and says, you know, we need a general strike. And I'm thinking a general strike. Who are you? Joseph Stalin, is this the new Bolshevik revolution happening right here in America, starting in New York City? I would hope not, but that's what's going on. Too few people give a damn about history. Too few. I talk about this a lot, and I'm going to bring it up again because, to me, it was just really a remarkable thing. And you know what? I'll, I'll share it right after the show. I once found an, a, a, an image you know, from on the computer of a comic from a newspaper in the year 1919. And it had a picture of stone staircase, you know, like stair steps. And it, on it, it said, labor, chaos, war, things like that. And it, it showed these are the steps that you take when you want to bring about a revolution. This is what they taught the Bolsheviks, the Stalinists, the Leninists. This is what they taught. Today, their disciples run our university system. Today, those people are teaching my children how to think. Of course, I don't allow that, so I teach my children how to think. But the bottom line of it is, that was a, more than a 100 years ago. They've been doing it since then. We need to wake up and realize there, there's a concerted movement to push American values and American thinking into 
communist ideology, communist-friendly thinking. That's something that we cannot allow. Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site, out on the town, or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500. Or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative canyon. Explore our inventory online at WoodhouseBuickGMC.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC. We are professional grade. College can be expensive, but saving now can help your students save later. Give your child's college savings a boost by registering for a chance at a $1,000 savings plan deposit for 6th through 12th graders. Sign up today at iowastudentloan.org slash register. Anyway, keep it locked right there. One of the reasons that we can't allow that is because of how it would affect our financial system. And that's not something that we can allow. So we're going to learn about Bitcoin. We're going to learn about what's going on with the new Tesla investment in Bitcoin, how the value, as of a couple hours ago, they're saying the value of Tesla is now directly linked to the value of Bitcoin and that it's going through the roof, but then it's falling and it's going through the roof again and all sorts of things are happening. So we've got a top expert coming up next. You're listening to This Is America. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America. All right, America, welcome back. This is Rich Valdez. We are still here in New York City, and I want to get into this stuff. It's all over the news every day, and it's, it's honestly, it's hard to keep up with, and I keep up with a lot of news. But we've got cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in particular, that has shot up in value. It's going through the roof. I remember a, a Wall Street guy had just retired. I met him at this function that I had a while back, and he tells me, um, I asked him, I said, oh, so you retired from Wall He was a young guy. 48, something like that. And he said, I was like, what do you do? And he was like, oh, thankfully I'm retired. And I was like, oh, wow, what'd you do? And he said, oh, I was a Wall Street guy. And I was like, wow, give me a tip, bro. I want to retire at 48. (laughs) And he said, I'll give you a real tip. If you can get your hands on it, you want to buy this stuff, Bitcoin. And I was like, what's a Bitcoin? And he explained it's a digital currency, blah, blah, blah. It's very finite. They have to mine it. It's the whole thing. And I got half of what he said. And the bottom line was, I was like, how much is it? How many, How much is a share? He said, well, each coin right now, you, you can get them for $4,500. And I was like, that's kind of a lot for one share of something. Well, lo and behold, this was four or five years ago. Today, it's 50 grand or just under 50 grand uh, each. And I'm like, man, had I listened to him then, I'd probably still be talking on the radio, but I'd be a lot happier. So anyway, we uh, I want to talk about that because there's a story on CNBC.com right now. Tesla's share price is now directly tied to the value of Bitcoin. That's according to one analyst at Wedbush that says that they're, they're you know, joint at the hip and that this comes with added risk. And, you know, you have Elon Musk who personally tweets about Ethereum and the Dogecoin and all these other things that he's into. Um, I like to call it the doggy coin. And all of this is coming about because in January, Tesla bought $1.5 billion in Bitcoin. And they plan to start using that as payment for Tesla, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm looking at that. I see a lot of things. Then, you know, they had some big losses. There was a little bit of turmoil. Shares of Tesla slid. In trading yesterday, they were down 7%. I don't think that's a huge deal when you're talking about that kind of growth if you get in early. But we're going to get into that in a minute. And there's all this uh, 
skepticism now around this. Is it the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? Plus, I want you guys to learn more about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a whole. That's why we have one of the experts in this field. He's the CEO of CoinFlip. Now, CoinFlip is an ATM company where you can literally go up to an ATM and buy into these coins. So I'm not going to steal his spiel because I couldn't do it anyway. I don't know anything about this stuff. Daniel Palatsky, CEO of CoinFlip, welcome. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, super appreciate it. You bet, man. So help everybody here in New York that's listening and everybody across America understand a little bit about what's going on with this volatility with Bitcoin. It's up at 50 grand or 49K, uh, going up and down a little bit. Uh, do you think that this fluctuation in Bitcoin is a make or break kind of thing, or is it just uh, spe- skepticism and speculation from Wall Street analysts? Uh, I think this is business as usual. Um, if you go back in Bitcoin's history, you'll see, you know, way larger percentage rises and drops. I actually think that as Bitcoin, like as it gets older and more mature, it actually does get less volatile. So, yes, this is kind of a big drop from all that, like, you know, FOMO buying that was going on. And everyone's like, oh, I got to get my hands on some Bitcoin. But now that I think that, like, institutions are involved, I feel like they're just going to keep uh, buying up the dip. Like, I feel like every time it goes down, like, they're going to, like, you know, buy it so it's not as, volatile as it was in years past when it was only like people buying it what's your take on was it a good idea or a bad idea for an institution like tesla to get involved a big company to to get involved and say you know we're going to purchase 1.5 billion dollars of this i guess you know to make change and start doing transactions with bitcoin was it a good idea was a bad idea doesn't matter (laughs) i mean i'm a little biased you know you're (laughs) speaking with someone that's been a bitcoin fanatic since like 2013 um i personally think it's an amazing thing I think that Elon Musk is super innovative and like the legitimacy he brings is great. And just like his company too. I think that the whole goal of mine, you know, when I first started with this whole Bitcoin ATM stuff is for, you know, CoinFlip to kind of become and CoinFlip to help like Bitcoin become that world reserve currency, whatever, just like kind of like a global safe haven, like gold 2.0. The fact that a huge company like Tesla is like buying in, you know, that really, sets that narrative and yeah, kind it begins of like, to give it legitimacy. Yeah. Now, yeah. with, with yeah. that being said, because this is a question I always ask, and I honestly don't really have the answer to, uh, but I, for years, when I was a little kid, there was a cover of The Economist that showed, um, you know, the dollar is over, gold will come back as the gold standard, and it'll it'll be what, what you know, becomes the, the default for everybody. And... That's yet to happen. I think everybody still has their currency based on whatever it's based on, fiat currency based on, for us, the financing of debt and whatnot. Um, do you, how, I guess, close, if you know, to put your speculator hat on, how close do you think we are, Daniel Palatsky, CEO of CoinFlip, from actually being at a place where people will say, you know what, the new, the new default, the new reserve is going to be Bitcoin? Man, I mean, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine there, Rich, I think. But I would think probably, you know, that changes like that take a while. Like, I would think at least 10 years. Yeah. You know, well, I've like, been watching it for 30 year. years and I haven't seen it happen. <laughs> That's why I've, be, I've started to lose hope. Because I think the gold standard is a good thing. I really do. I think it's a, it's a precious metal that is, you know, it's you can put it in your pocket under your bed you know might make your pants sag a little bit but it's it's a it's a real thing and i think it was it was a good thing to have and 
you know, it, it the the fact that we don't have that standard anymore, a lot of people argue for and against it. I'm very indifferent on it, but I do think it makes sense to have it. And I honestly wouldn't be against uh, Bitcoin either if, if it could maintain that type of value. So I'm just thinking, what would those 10 years look like? What do you see as the major steps that have to happen for, for that to actually become a thing? Yeah, well, let's take a step back first. Is that I think that gold really hasn't caught on as much. Um, because it is a little bit like clunky, like it's hard to move. It's kind of this metal that has an arbitrary value. We don't really know how much is there, you know, all this kind of stuff that makes it very hard to like, you can't go into Walgreens, rip off a little piece of gold and spend it. So like, I feel like Bitcoin does kind of solve a lot of those problems. Like it's deflationary, like gold, you know, there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin, and you can send it halfway across the world, you know, 24 hours a day. For and you could do it on PayPal. Less. <laughs> huh? And you could do it on PayPal. Yeah, you could do it on PayPal. And, like, it's a way more lightweight version of gold. So I think, like, a big reason that, like, gold maybe didn't catch on as much or isn't, like, huge, like, people are not, like, hoarding gold as much as maybe they used to is because it's not convenient. And I feel like the new uh, generation, like, really puts a value on convenience. So I think that's a big thing. And I think in the next 10 years, like, that's kind of what Bitcoin has to really do. It has to really become a user-friendly product where you can both hold it, you can send it, you can loan it, you can spend it, and just really becoming this, like, sophisticated financial instrument with uh, more and more institutions like Tesla hopping on. Yeah, that'll so- just continue to increase its legitimacy and hopefully eventually governments. Yeah, that leads me to my next question, which I think is exactly where you come in. And we're talking to Daniel Polotsky, the CEO of CoinFlip ATM. And I don't know much about CoinFlip ATM, so this is your shot. Let us know about it. Can I just walk up to an ATM, a CoinFlip ATM in Manhattan or Miami, and uh, put my credit card in and walk away with uh, some Bitcoin? How does it work? Well, we actually offer credit card directly on our website. So if you wanted to use a credit card, you could buy Bitcoin directly on our website. Uh, The Bitcoin ATMs are primarily for cash. Uh, And what's really cool about our Bitcoin ATMs is you get the Bitcoin in probably 10 minutes or less. Like there's absolutely no lockup periods. Uh, First time customers get registrations processed in 10 minutes or less. We have 24-7 customer service, uh, private experience, and the absolute lowest fees in the industry. And we just make it super, super easy to get your Bitcoin. And if you don't want to use cash at an ATM, then we also, you know, on our website, coinflip.tech, uh, we have wire transfers and credit cards as well. So however you want to buy Bitcoin, we got you. Now, how many, um, I guess, um, actual ATMs do you have and what locations are they in? So we have just over 1,600 uh, Bitcoin ATMs across the U.S. Uh, we've been slightly, like, slightly larger than probably tripling in size each year. Uh, we typically have them in convenience stores, liquor stores, vape shops, um, just a whole like kind of assortment of places that you know anyone can easily walk up to and have a nice, comfortable private experience, which has you know long hours and parking. Yeah, so it kind of underscores what you were talking about before about convenience. Now, uh, yeah. Elon Musk often talks about um, cryptocurrency and even though he did make this purchase of bitcoin and and that's what we're talking about but there's also talk about ethereum and litecoin and this dogecoin and help us make sense of all of these different types of digital currency that everybody talks about 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like very speculative, right? Like, not, I'm not talking about necessarily like coins, but Litecoin, you know, but there's thousands of cryptocurrencies out there, you know, that we don't even like, <laughs> that no one person could possibly know all about. Um, most of them are probably not going to go anywhere, but, you know, they do still have that like blockchain value. And some of them actually do have value added, like things that Bitcoin necessarily doesn't do. Like, for example, Ethereum does something completely different than Bitcoin. But a lot of the coins are, you know, I would say pretty similar in how they're built as well. You know, like Litecoin, I would just kind of, like, to make a comparison, I would kind of put, like, Litecoin and Bitcoin as silver and gold. Like, Mm -hmm. similar functions, but just different, like, security on different, like, throughout different blockchains. So, you know, you don't want to put all your eggs in Bitcoin's baskets as some people maybe believe in the speed of Litecoin or something like that. But... Um, most of the cryptocurrencies are pretty similar and a few like Ethereum and some others have things that Bitcoin does not really address, which makes them kind of interesting in my opinion. All right. Well, I'm going to put a pin in that there because I I need to brush up on that and go grab my ATM card and go get me some coins. Uh, Daniel (laughs) Polotsky, CEO of CoinFlip, thank you for joining us and breaking it down. I have no doubt that we'll be reaching out again in the future as these types of stories become more popular. I know that Tesla is on the verge of becoming a trillion-dollar company, as is the entire market. They say they're looking at some $5 trillion uh, growth numbers in in the coming time period. So – Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. Take care. Now, up next, we're going to talk about what's going on with liberals. Whatever happened to liberals, there used to be liberals, and now it seems that there's only progressives. We're going to hear what one of the OG liberals in the game had to say to Tucker Carlson last night. Keep it locked right there. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America. What's up, America? This is Rich Valdez, your liberty-loving Latino amigo right here in New York City. Now, we talked earlier about what's going on in America. And one of the things that I think is really important to look at is the change in politics. Now, on the Republican side, you've seen uh, there's always been a shift back and forth, kind of an ebb and flow between moderates and conservatives. And on the left side with the Democrats, we've historically seen very similar. You have some conservative blue dog Democrats. You have more moderate kind of middle of the road. They go whichever way the wind blows, kind of Joe Biden types, or at least the way he used to be. And and then you had some more liberal ones. And again, you always had that outlier that was a extreme radical progressive, Bernie Sanders, Liz Warren, those types that are really in the fringe, Ed Markey, But in recent years, that group has grown. So the radical fringe of the Democrat Party, the hard left, these people have really amassed more power and gotten more people elected. This is one of those things that I think has alienated a lot of liberals, even here in New York City or even here in New York State. Right. In New York City, you've got people that look at Bill de Blasio and they go, de Blasio is ruining the city. He's he panders so much because he believes in all of these these grandiose feathery ideas that have no substance to them and ultimately hurt the same city and people he's trying to help. He claimed to be for 
black lives. He paints this mural on Fifth Avenue in front of Trump Tower, which to me is, you know, it's, it's, it's insulting to the constituent. Because if you want to, if I'm a black person, or, and I am a Latino, but if you want to help minorities, then help them. Do what you're going to do. Don't write it on the floor. Like, how patronizing is that? But all that being said, you have Democrats now, you know, borough presidents, others in his own party that say it's out of control. What you're doing is out of control. You're allowing the city to fall by the wayside just to pander to the extreme radical left of the party. And he happens to be that extreme radical left. Cuomo has gravitated in that regard as well, mainly because I believe he suffers from a uh, an illness that I'm going to diagnose him with called fascism. And because he likes fascism, he uh, he believes in this strength. He likes that mobster type of thing where, you know, do what I say or I'll hurt you. And I think he's also hurting the Democrats so much so that there's now growing support. <laughs> Go figure de Blasio, who's always been at odds with him, but now he comes out against him. Ron Kim, there's a lot of people we talked about already. This is my point that there's this rift where you have just liberals that are like, you know what, I'm liberal, I'm pro-choice, I'm this, I'm that, you know, I'm for big government, but not for big government for socialism, just for big government for crony big governmentism, you know, like a real liberal. And, and they think that these leftists have gone way too far. And one such is Naomi Wolf. And I'm looking at this piece in PJ Media. It says she might be the last true liberal, quote unquote, in America. And there, she's a pro-statist. Um, she she doesn't like using the word liberal to describe um, statists and people that promote cancel culture and the totalitarian left because she feels that's not what liberals were. Liberals were bra-burning feminists. Now you have. Just something so radical that no, even the liberals are like, what the heck is going on? I want you to listen to her in an exchange she had on the Fox News channel with Tucker Carlson. Check this out. They're using that to engage in kind of emergency orders that that simply strip us of our rights, rights to property, rights to assembly, rights to worship, and all of the rights that our Constitution guarantees. So people are definitely horrified and noticing. I think people are shocked and, um, and, and divided, as I mentioned before. And the other thing that happened is you said this has all been very sudden. Um, and when you look back, you know, March of 2020, a lot of things started to move that kind of locked into place a set of policies that are kind of 360-degree, full-on totalitarian policies. So I think a lot of us are kind of in culture shock. Uh, Luckily or unluckily, I've been studying closing democracies for 12 years, so I recognized early on, you know, once, once I realized New York State had emergency powers, I know from history that no one gives up emergency powers willingly. Uh, They always drag it on and drag it on. There's nothing liberal about people who want to control every aspect of your life, including how much oxygen you can breathe in public. They are not liberal by any stretch of the imagination, nor do they support free speech as true liberals do. The American left cancels speech through firebombing, rioting, or whatever other violent activities they regularly engage in to shut down free speech in America. It continues. Check this out. Only from studying history do I know how predictable it is when you start to have um, elected officials say we are not going to follow the Constitution because 
it, there's a pandemic. And I just want to say, lastly, and then I promise I'll stop, um, nowhere in the Constitution does it say all this can be suspended if there's a bad disease. We have lived through typhus, cholera, smallpox, HIV, tuberculosis, polio, the Spanish flu. You know, we've lived through an attack on our soil. Never have there been months and months and months of emergency powers when we weren't actually fighting a war. So right. um, this is completely unprecedented. Lockdowns have never been done before in free societies. And really, we're turning into a version of a, a totalitarian state sort of before everyone's eyes. And I, I really hope you know, we wake up quickly because history also shows that it's a, a small window in which people can fight back. She is spot on. I've never agreed with a liberal so much, but lately I find myself agreeing with Alan Dershowitz, agreeing with Naomi Wolf, because they're, they're moving from their politically liberal, which was again versus conservatism, to actually now embracing so much of what conservatism embraces. They're becoming, I would say, they're either becoming classical liberals or their party and their peers are navigating so far away from what they once stood for that they feel alienated and don't know what to do. So liberals, in my opinion, may try a coup to take back their party, politically speaking, and say, you know what, we need this thing back. Because in states like New York and other states across the nation, governors have continually extended the state of emergency orders that have given them this power to to impose unconstitutional limits on our civil rights. This includes shutting down schools and depriving children of an education, outlawing funerals, church services, depriving Americans of graduations, other rites of passage, ritual baptisms, the right to operate private businesses without the interference of the state, and so much more. Excellent piece here in PJ Media, and it's spot on in my opinion. This is the the issue of of this epoca right in Spanish of, of this period of time right now is this is what we're faced with when you're now gaining consensus with people that you were once at odds with and we will remain to be at odds with this is what they want you know uh, to happen they want us to not have the conversation I think they want us to continue to be divided because that's always been their goal to coalesce people through division and as a student of history you, you 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 should know that right it's very clear whether any any of these despots any of these uh, autocratic totalitarian regime leaders this is how they do it so i think she is right ms wolf in accurately saying there's a small window for people to get together we the people that those three big words at the top of our constitution we the people have to get together because without that we're going to be screwed these things will become the norm. Every day they're becoming the norm. You know, the whether you like Trump or not and agree with the election or don't, yesterday was a seminal moment, a pivotal moment in our history because the Supreme Court decided that they were not going to acknowledge the gripes of the Pennsylvania state legislature that said that they, in effect, had the authority and the court said, we're not doing it. We're not doing And they did it for political purposes is what the word on the street is. But we don't have the Supreme Court for political purposes. We have them for legal purposes, for constitutional purposes. They are the, the arbiters of, of saying this is yes and this is no. This is true and this is false and this is law and this is not. This is what's constitutional and this is what isn't. 
And these extra constitutional measures that we saw them take in Pennsylvania and other states that really, um, really push the envelope are now precedential. Now there's precedent for it. Now you can say, well, that happened in the election of 2020, so therefore we can do it again. It literally has eroded the fabric of the Constitution because it no longer has the fortitude that it once had. And that's sad. And I think that's why the great one, Mark Levin, often says that we are in a post-constitutional republic. And in many ways, we are. There was once this thing called the Constitution that we live by, and now we live by a semblance of it. It's no longer the original intent of the text. Textualists are looked at the wrong way. Now it's about doing what's politically expedient during the right time. And that's not what virtue is. That's not what integrity is. That's not what America is all about. So, like I always say, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And the only thing that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. So, take that to heart. Be safe. I'm Rich Valdez, and this is America. This is America. 